Hi, this is Jack Lawrence, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass music. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Bluegrass Jam Along. Um, this episode is part of the Doc Watson 100th birthday celebration uh, that I put out a couple of months ago. Um, and I'm aware that those two episodes ended up being almost five hours long, and some people get put off by having to listen to five hours worth of stuff. But a lot of the stuff in there is great, um, and there's a couple of interviews in particular that I thought I might just separate out and put out on their own. And one is the one with Jack Lawrence, and one is the one with T. Michael Common. So I'm going to start with this one, which is the interview with Jack Lawrence. And I've just taken it out of the the full episode and just going to present it here separately for those who'd really like to hear that but don't really want to listen to five hours worth of stuff. So what you're going to hear is an interview with Jack Lawrence about his time spent with Doc Watson. Um, this is part of exactly the same version that appears in the Doc episodes. If you enjoy this and you haven't heard those, I'll put links in the show notes and do go and check them out. But if you just want to hear the interview with Jack, uh, this is it. So yeah, that's what's coming up. And I will put out the one with T. Michael next. Uh, so here you go. Here's my chat with Jack Lawrence. <laughs> Back in the late 70s, mid 70s, uh, I met Merle Watson through um, through my friend Joe Smothers, who I was playing, doing it. Well, we had a rock and roll band. And we also did a folk music duo. And Joe and I did some opening acts for Doc and Merle and Merle and I became friends uh, in the in the fall of um, in the fall of 1983. Um, I got a phone call from Merle on a Friday afternoon and he asked me, uh, you know, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to mow my grass tomorrow. Um, uh, it's, it's Saturday and you know, I don't have anything else going on. And he said, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you go to Lake Charles, Illinois and play a show with dad? Hmm. Uh, he just didn't, didn't really want to go. I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm, for whatever reason. And so I did, uh, and, uh, Merle kept calling me to fill in, uh, for him. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny. The first, the first show I figured, okay, we'll do a little bit of rehearsal. But that never happened. I mean, I played with Doc for 27 years, and I can count on two fingers how you know how many times we rehearsed. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it, it must have worked because uh, you know I ended up being there for 27 years. And the first year I played with Doc, I played about 50% of the shows through 1984. In 1985, I played probably 95% or even better because Merle was in the process of building Doc's house. And so he was clearing the property and he was, um, you know, working with the contractors and that sort of thing. So uh, he didn't go out very much in, in 85. And of course, in uh, October of, of 85, uh, he was killed in the accident. And so uh, something evidently worked uh, because I stuck around for a long time. 
And the first four years or so of that, uh, you know, I was, uh, T. Michael Coleman was part of the band. Hmm. So, um, you know, Michael and I became close during those four years and it kept in touch and done a project here and there. Yeah, and you'll get to play together again at the Docker 100 shows. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, it's going to be it's going to be great fun. We've only done one show, so it's we're still, you know, kind of figuring out how how to approach it and that's been a you know a, a work in progress for the last couple of months so we're getting started up again um at the birchmere in alexandria where doc and well and michael as well we all played for years uh you know uh two or three times a year for you know 25 years or something uh, so that's going to be, that's going to be fun. Uh, I haven't played at the Birchmere in a couple of years. Um, Michael and I did another doc tribute show that was supposed to include Wayne Henderson who canceled at the last minute, but we got our friend Dudley Connell from the seldom scene to come in and cover for, for Wayne. So, uh, you know, that was, uh, and that was a hoot playing with Dudley. We had, we had a good time with that, but I'm you know I'm looking forward to taking this show back to the Birchmere. Yeah, it'd be really cool. And so presumably, when you started playing with Doc, you were really familiar with a lot of his music prior to that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in fact, that first show, there was no rehearsal, so he asked me um, just you know, 10 minutes before we were going on stage. Well, do you know this song? Yeah, I know that one. How about this one? Yeah. Uh, and he named three songs maybe. And uh, he said, well, okay, we'll do those three first and then go from there. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it, it the, sh the show went well. <laughs> And I was familiar with Doc because, uh, you know, from the time I was around 13 or 14, maybe in the, in the mid sixties, um, I had some of his records, you know, I had grown up listening and watching Flat and Scruggs on TV and my dad was a sound tech at a music hall. So I got to see Flat and Scruggs live and Bill Monroe live and, Porter Wagner, Dolly Parton, and Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, everybody came through this music hall where uh, where I lived. And so, uh, you know, and my dad made sure to introduce me to, to all these people as they came through. And, uh, yeah, when I was, uh, you know, 13, maybe 14, I discovered Doc. And I'd been trying to play, like, Earl Scruggs up to that point. Uh finger style mm. and um you know i got actually got doc's first solo record and uh was knocked over by it and, and um started working on the the flat pick stuff and you know then i discovered clarence white and i did you know through through doc and then uh you know glenn campbell was another huge influence for me um 
not to mention a you know a couple other guitar players in the in the area here. I mean, uh, well, Tony, uh, I met Tony Rice when I we met each other when we were. He was seventeen, and I was about to turn fifteen. Uh, they moved back to North Carolina. I guess that would have been nineteen sixty eight or so. Uh, and Tony was not as as much an influence for me as he just was. Uh, he was just uh, another one of the handful of flat pickers uh, in this area. There were a couple of others, and we all competed against each other in at fiddlers' conventions and guitar contests and stuff uh, from '68 until well, really, you know, Tony left in. 1970 to do the bluegrass alliance thing and then i left uh i left home about a year later and joined the bluegrass alliance after he left so uh you know uh yeah but it was it was doc that all that got me started on the flat pick thing and you know the the on stage record when that came out um when that came out, that was like my Bible for a couple of years. Uh, you know, I listened to that over and over and over. It's so like back at that first gig, once those three songs are gone and you've kind of, you know, you've gone through the three that you've arranged to play, it's just a case of Doc shouts out a song and then you're off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, it, it you know, and it doesn't, it never mattered whether, I, you know, I knew the song or not. He would just, he would, and that continued until, you know, and uh, until the very end, <laughs> you know, Doc would just turn over, turn around to me and say, you know, this is in G. <laughs> and, you know, I would say, yeah, I know G. And then he would start. <laughs> and, uh, and that, like I said, that continued until the, almost through the very last gig. Um, yeah. So. I you know, and it took it took a couple of months uh, for me to kind of settle into it. You know, I was uh, you know I was concentrating more on playing as different differently than Doc, uh, more than I was actually playing the song. And it took me, and Doc never never said anything one way or the other. You know, um, you know, he always let me play what I wanted to play when I wanted to play it. He encouraged that. Um, but, you know, I listened to a couple of early shows and realized I was a little outside the pocket. So I reined myself in. And as the years, as the years went on, um, and it didn't take, it, actually, it didn't take years, but it, you know, within a, a, a few months, you know, uh, we learned how to play with each other. Um, you know, it's it's not always easy when you got two two guitars and both play lead. And and Doc would never hear him doing it, it doing it any other way. You know, so it it just but it just, it took. It's amazing how little time it took for us to lock in together. I mean, especially with Coleman there, who was rock solid. Um, so, 
Um, you know, I reined myself in a little bit, and as the years progressed, Doc started getting more adventurous because I, you know, I kind of played by the seat of my pants. Uh, you know, I'm from the put your fingers anywhere school of music, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, luckily it works most of the time. <laughs> but I noticed Doc getting a little more adventurous in his solos. And um, after we'd been doing it a number of years, we did a show with, uh, with Newgrass Revival. And Bela Fleck came to me. And, um, and gave me what I thought was a real compliment, you know. I mean, he, he said, Doc plays better with you than anybody he's ever played with. <laughs> I mean, that's you know? a compliment. So I think, uh, you know, I took that as a real compliment. And, you know, like I said, we rubbed off on each other. You know, in fact, as the years went on, you know, you know, our, our arrangements, our arrangements just happened organically because Doc would call something we'd never played together, you know, what, when we're on stage in front of, you know, thousands of people sometimes. And so, um, you know, after playing the song a few times, if it got into the rotation, after playing it a few times, I'd figure out like a little lick that I did in certain places, uh, a little signature lick that I thought, you know, fit the song. And on occasion, on occasion, we'd be playing the song and I'd realize, you know, Doc's playing my part. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have to figure out something else to do, which was, you know, again, you know, I take that as a real compliment. Um, you know, Doc was always very gracious with uh, anybody who played with him, you know, to let them have their moment in the sun. Um, you know, uh, we'd have people come up and, and sit in with us over the course of the years. You know, Sam Bush, uh, uh, David Greer, uh, you know, just Jerry Douglas, Mike Aldridge. I mean, it just everybody wanted to play with Doc for one thing. And we loved that. And so we'd have people sit in all the time, uh, you know, and after I'd been, you know, after I'd been there just a couple of months, he asked me to start singing a, a, a few songs on the shows as well. So, you know, uh, I remember going into the recording studio uh, and we had to tell Doc, hey, you're giving all the, you know, you need to take your solos. You're giving them all away. I mean, this is a Doc Watson record, you know. You're giving all the solos away. You know, you need to, <laughs> you need to play, play your solos. So, he, you know, he, but he just loved, especially the younger, you know, people of my generation, which now we're the elders, <laughs> kind of, but... But back when I started with him, uh, which is approaching 40 years ago, um, you know, it, he always hung out with younger musicians, you know, for the most part. And I think that's what kept him vital, you know, well into his 70s and well in, in, into his 80s. And that sort of point you were talking about, you know, giving away his solos and being sort of very generous as a as a musician and just I was watching the other day one of the the homespun doc videos which is the one that was filmed at Melfast um and you know 
another artist you would buy their video and it's them showing you their stuff but there's bits just going right let's go and look at what jack's doing let's go and you know deconstruct that break that jack just played and it's you know it's it's just a a sort of generosity of we're all making this music together and so it's all interesting which just is it's right. not always the case yeah i you know i i didn't know i was even going to be part of that thing until uh late the night before <laughs> and uh you know, it was at like 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning at a festival where, you know, of course, I, you know, up late the night before. And so I, I, I look pretty ragged, but but we played well. <laughs> yeah, and it's a great, um, it's a great video. And it's, you know, it's it, things like that. Uh, they're, they're very, they're, they give you real insight into, I think, the fact that we've got all these videos of players over the decades that Happy and Homespun and other companies have put out. It's just a wonderful document of some of those things, particularly when it's not in a studio, when it is at a festival setting and there's, you know, a lot of chats as well. Right, yeah. There there are a number of uh, videos out there, um, starting with VHS, which nobody uses anymore, um, that I was a part of, uh, you know, with Doc, and uh, there, I mean, one in particular um, was uh, a set from Merlefest. I think it was '92. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure, but it was. Uh, it was Doc, um, Tony Rice, Dan Crary, and Steve Kaufman. And it's just a guitar set, you know, and. Uh, you know, and that and that was also done at Merle Fest. I think the year after the homespun thing, but I'm not positive. Yeah, it's great to have all that documented. And um, just sort of thinking about you, you touring with Doc, because obviously, you know, you're talking about Doc never told you what to play, and he very much let you play in your own style, and you were very conscious of that. Because so touring with Doc, there's two sides to that. One is to play in the places that Merle had played with him. And Merle had his own very distinctive style as well. He wasn't just sitting there back in Dock Up. Um, but also just the amount of time you would be spending with Doc on the road as well. It's, you know, it's a, there's a musical relationship and a personal relationship there. Oh, of, of course. Um, you know, uh, I spent more time on the road with Doc than I did with my growing family for years um and you know sometimes it was hard when coleman when coleman was still with us that first four years we could kind of split the responsibilities um you know i mean we would we would fly and rent cars and you know, to, to, to get to the, the gigs. And so, you know, one of us would get docked through security at the airport and while the other, or pick up the bags while the other guy goes to get the rental car and, and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, after Coleman left the band in, I believe it was October of 87, uh, it was just docking me on the road. So, uh, that it was hard work, you know. I mean, the the 
two hours that we spent playing the show was the best part of the day, <laughs> you know, uh, and, you know, also after Coleman left, I mean, I had to do all the driving, um, cause doc drives too fast and, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> that's always our joke. Uh, and you know, and as time, as time progressed, um, you know, Doc brought me in as a, as a full partner. And even before that happened, I was, I was also booking, booking the flights, booking the, uh, rental cars in the hotels and, um, you know, doing all the road manager stuff too. Um, so eventually doc made me a brought me as a full partner and uh you know compensated me for a lot of that extra work um and it's you know any kind of touring situation where it's just a couple of you it's a lot of time to spend with another person and particularly over a span of you know quarter of a century it's you know and the touring in those situations 20 years older than you were when you started doing it, you, you know, the, that kind of work affects you in different ways at different stages in your life. And, you know, it's a, it's a remarkable relationship. Uh, yeah. You know, there were very few times we had a crossword over that span. Uh, but they're, you know, just like a marriage, you know, there are going to be times when you butt heads and, you know, say stuff that you might not really mean or some stuff that you really do mean. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, uh, it, it was a lot, but that, that happened very, very seldom. You know, we, uh, we were pretty tight. We were pretty tight friends. And, uh, you know, uh, and that's, I, I, I think, uh, you know, Merle's trust in me really, um, really kind of, well, I don't know, uh, you know, Merle's trust in me rubbed off on Doc. I mean, Doc trusted me because he's, you know, Merle did, and he trusted Merle. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, just, just prior to, just prior to Merle's death, maybe five weeks or so, uh, they were recording, uh, Doc's only bluegrass record, um, uh, riding the midnight train. Uh, the only bluegrass record you ever really did. And, uh, he called, he called me one day and said, uh, while we were recording it and, uh, asked me to, to fly to Nashville and meet doc and T Michael and drive to, uh, a couple of gigs that were there after the recording session. And Merle called me that night. Uh, I just moved right into his hotel room <laughs> after I got there 
And uh, about one o'clock in the morning or something like that, uh, you know, the phone rings and it's, it's Merle. And uh, we talked for about an hour or so. And, you know, he never really gave me any reasons, but, you know, he told me during that conversation that uh, he was, uh, he was going to step back from touring and, you know, he was just kind of tired of the road and, you know, wanted to do something else. I mean, he was as happiest when he was, you know, uh, organizing a construction crew or riding his tractor or clearing land. I mean, that's what he loved doing that. But anyway, he said, I'm not going to be doing this very much longer. And I just want to know, you know, you and dad get along well and you play well together uh, you know, um, you know, I just, uh, I'm going to be stepping back and, uh, you know, I just want to make sure that you're in and, you know, you'll take care of dad and, and everything. And I said, well, of course, of course I will. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing it for, you know, almost two years at that point. And I said, of course I will. And, uh, that was the last time I ever spoke with, with Merle. Um, you know, I got a call about, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, maybe a month later from T. Michael, uh, you know, telling me what had, what had happened. You know, and, and Merle was, you know, had a real sense of humor about, uh, about his place in the, in the group those last couple of years, you know, I'd been out there, especially the last year, 85, uh, 85, 84 through 85, really. Um, I'd been out there most of the time. And so on the shows, uh, on the shows that Merle decided he was going to play, you know, people would uh, come up and, and tell him they were, they were kind of surprised to see him because he, he hadn't been out for a while. And, and he'd just tell him, well, I'm filling in for Jack. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he was, you know, Merle, when he died, I think was the, the maybe the happiest I'd seen him in, in a while. Um, and, you know, I think maybe being off the road was was good for him. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't suit everybody, and it's as you say, there's a lot of responsibilities go with it. And yeah, well, he, you know, he'd been on the at this point, he'd been on the road at the point of his death. He'd been on the road with his father for twenty years, mm. basically, and uh, you know, that's believe me, that's a long time. <laughs> that's a long time to stay with one act because up until the, I mean, I was with a dozen acts before I started playing with, with, uh, with doc. And, you know, that just, you know, the whole doc thing just really clicked. I mean, uh, I think the best either one of us ever played was when we played together. And it's an interesting span of time to spend like in one musical situation, 
in, in just in terms of the arc of that as well, you know, I'd be really interested to know if over the course of that 25 years, so that, like how how Doc was perceived, because we look back on Doc now as this figure on the sort of Mount Rushmore of American acoustic music. Um, and there's, you know, po- post Will the Circle Being Broken, Doc was put in a whole new light by that. But there must have been um, a journey between those points where sometimes he was much more in the spotlight and you know the the acoustic music in general comes and goes in popularity particularly through the 80s and 90s it's right well you know actually you know the circle the circle record saved doc's career i mean in 1971 uh between the circle record and the influx and the popularity of bluegrass festivals you know which, you know, in the early 70s was really starting to take off here, you know. Um, but the Circle record was, that, that saved Doc and Merle's career because uh, they were kind of, I think they were kind of struggling a little before that. Uh, so that was a big shot in the arm for them. And then coupled that, like I said, with the the, you know, bluegrass festivals becoming hot. And, you know, when I f- first started playing with Doc, we were playing dinky little clubs, you know, and, uh, you know, what would happen, we, we'd get an anchor gig, you know, a nice theater gig or something, then book clubs and stuff around that gig. And we did that for several years. And, uh, then around 1990, Doc decided he was going to retire. Uh, and so we didn't do anything for about, well, we played out the gigs we had, and then we didn't do anything for about two months or three months. I'd, I'd gotten involved with a, I'd gotten involved with a guitar shop and doing some guitar repair and staying at home for the first time in years. Hmm. And, um, that lasted for about three months <laughs> and doc called me and, uh, and said, well, do you, you know, I, I really want to go out and, and play, play some more, you know, play again. And, and I just said, I just told him, said, you know, look, I, I, I feel good being home for the first time in years. I've gotten involved with uh, this guitar shop thing. That's uh, just getting off the ground. You know, I'm not sure I want to. Not sure I want to go out, you know. And so he said, "Well, I understand." And we hung up. And about half an hour, forty minutes later, he called me again hmm. and said, "You know, I can't do this without you. You know, uh, you know, I, I really feel like I need to go out. Here's what. Here's here's my proposition." I'm going to take fewer, I'm going to double the price or double the fee that we're normally getting and, uh, and only go out maybe, maybe two weekends a month, just a couple of days at a time. And, um, so eventually, you know, those fees did get doubled and tripled in some cases. He said, uh, we'll, we'll take, uh, We'll just take the expenses off the top and split whatever's left. 
And, you know, I mean, that gave, and I, that was an offer I couldn't turn down. I mean, that was, <laughs> you know, it, it was very generous for one thing, but, um, you know, I, I would have been crazy to, to turn that offer down. And uh, given the relaxed schedule, you know, I still could put in the time at the, at the guitar shop. Uh, which, you know, I, and I did that for about five years as, uh, you know, and played with Doc at the same time until I got out of the guitar shop business. <laughs> mm. And did you, does the, was there a point, you know, around 2000 when Oh Brother just gave all forms of acoustic sort of bluegrass related music a shot in the arm? Was there a sudden sort of resurgence and interest for Doc's music after that, because it just is so easy for somebody like me who's got into bluegrass since then just to see all these things as always having been in the spotlight. But I know that things changed. Yeah, well, I you know, I don't know how much uh, Old Brother... I, I know it was a big boost for bluegrass and string band music, really, because, you know, quite honestly, there was not a whole lot of bluegrass in... Uh, Oh, brother, where art they all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, real bluegrass music. In fact, you know, uh, but, you know, I gave acoustic music in general a big shot in the arm, just like Bonnie and Clyde did in the 60s and Deliverance did in the 70s. Um, you know, all of those movies uh, gave a, a little bit of boost to, you know, to, to the music. Um, you know, acoustic and roots music, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that Doc never considered himself bluegrass and he did not really like it much when people pigeonholed him as a bluegrass guy. Uh, he told me, he said, I've never been in a bluegrass band. I've only done one bluegrass record, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a bluegrass artist, you know. But he didn't take into consideration the the impact his guitar playing had for guitar players in bluegrass bands, and um, you know, plus you know the, the the lines have been blurred about what is and isn't bluegrass for years. Yeah. <laughs> but Doc was always you know adamant that you know I can play bluegrass and I play and, and there's some of the stuff that I do that's you know, uh, flavored like that and certainly has those influences, but I'm not a bluegrass artist. And he finally came up with a term that just about everybody could understand and basically basically just would tell people, so, well, I play traditional plus. And they'd ask, well, what's that? He said, well, it's traditional music plus whatever the hell I want to play. <laughs> Yeah, and that's it's it's very true that um, Doc gets a lot. You have conversations about bluegrass guitarists, and Doc comes up as one of the, you know, the biggest influences on people. But you know, bluegrass is a, a specific format of a band with certain instruments and certain stylistic things, and, and so many things and, that get lumped in around that don't really fit that mold. Right. Yeah, and that's that's what Doc. That's how Doc felt about it. You know, so I, you know, we don't we don't have a mandolin and a banjo and a fiddle. You know, we can't play bluegrass, you know. I mean, he had his idea of what bluegrass is. 
and he wasn't it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And I think it's you know, and there's something like there's something good about that. I think that whole idea of traditional plus and not fitting into predefined versions of what music has to be just play music that you like in the way that you like it and that's that's doc watson you know that doc yeah. watson was sort of a genre to himself in many ways uh yeah i mean you know people at first um you know doc was a big fan of, of uh the moody blues uh we did nights in white satin mm. and uh you know, just just recently, I read a, re- a review. You, you know, Doc and I never recorded it together. We we played it all the time. He'd go on and on about you know uh, the Moody Blues and how he loved that song, and he'd worn out an eight track tape of that song <laughs> of, uh, of that album, and uh, so finally it came out on compact disc, and I bought it for him as a Christmas present or something. And uh, the next time we went out on tour, he pulled out Nights in White Satin. And just recently, I don't know if this, if it was on a, it was a review in Bluegrass Unlimited, I think, that mentioned maybe it's, it's on a compilation or a, a video or something, uh, a doc's version of that. Uh, well, it wasn't a video. I think it was the record he did with, the Frosty Morn guys at Merle Fest. They recorded it then. And somebody, somebody, and recently there was a review of that song, and they wondered who talked Doc into into playing that. They didn't like it at all. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I came very close to to writing a letter to the editor and saying. Nobody twisted his arm to play that song. He loved that song. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you didn't tell Doc what to do very often. <laughs> I mean, especially musically. You never told him what to do. And he afforded me the same thing. He never told me what to play or when to play. So, you know, just go yeah. with it. Oh, that's really cool. You know, there's just the idea that anybody would twist Doc's art. Anybody who is that certain about their own musical style and that comfortable with who they are and that sure of their own musical intent, the idea that you could convince them to do anything they didn't want to do seems almost laughable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never, you know, I mean, I had a, a little bit of a problem when I was young with band leaders that wanted me to play like a certain, well, for one, Lonnie Pierce with the Bluegrass Alliance, you know, they'd already had Dan Crary and they'd had uh, uh, Tony. And, you know, I was the, the next up. And Lonnie wanted to go back to the pre-Tony sound, you know, he wanted me to play like Dan Crary. And I just said, you know, I can't. <laughs> uh, you know, I can't. Nobody can play just like somebody else. You know, I, I, you know, I can't do that. 
He said, why don't you learn band solos? And I said, Lonnie, if you had told me that before you hired me, uh, you know, when you offered me the job, I would have turned it down. You know, I would have turned it down. And so, you know, we kind of butted heads over that. And I was only 18 years old <laughs> at the time. And even then, <laughs> you know, I was, you know, was I influenced by Dan? Of course I was. You know, I, his bluegrass guitar record was was terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I, I would say that I was more influenced by Dan than Tony. Uh, oh, for sure, for sure, m- much more. But I didn't want to be Dan. <laughs> um, and, you know, when I, and so I went through a succession of bands, you know, before I got the thing with Doc, and it was just so refreshing at that, you know, at that point, that, hey, here's a guy that's going to let me be me mm. and decide, you know, let me decide what I want to play when I want to play it. You know, I own the the D18, Martin D18, that Doc used on uh, a bunch of the Vanguard records uh, on stage. Um, oh, Home Again and the Flat and Scruggs Strictly Instrumental. Uh, he gave me that guitar, uh, that guitar I don't know, uh, 35 years ago. Um, and the way I got it is kind of is, is pretty funny. Um, at Christmas every year, the weekend before Christmas, Doc and I would, would play at a place in Johnson City, Tennessee uh, called the Down Home. And it was like our Christmas party, you know, uh, there we go over, we'd go over and play two shows, turn the house, do two shows. And, uh, did it the week before Christmas for 25 years. Um, and I would go pick up doc, drive across the mountain and we would do the shows and I'd come back usually driving with one eye closed. Uh, we would come back and I would stay the night with doc and Rosalie. So on those occasions, I would grab a, I'd, I'd go out in the kitchen and grab a cup of coffee and go down into doc's music room. And, uh, I noticed in the corner behind his, uh, stereo cabinet, uh, this old beat up guitar. And so I pulled it out, out of the corner and I recognized it as the guitar I'd grown up listening to on his records. And so I dusted, this bridge was coming off of it, and it had three strings, and there was a half an inch of dust on it. So, uh, you know, I pulled it out, and I dusted it off, and I was plucking on those two or three strings. And uh, then I took a big sniff of the sound hole. I'm a sound hole sniffer from way back. I love the smell of, you know, the interior of acoustic guitars. And so about the time I took that sniff in the sound hole, Doc was standing in the door and he said, what on earth are you doing? And I told him, so, well, there's this, you know, I found this guitar in the corner, you know, I think, 
I think it can be repaired. I think you can fix this up. There's still some music left in this old thing. So and he said, well, you know, maybe one of these days I'll give it to you. Well, it didn't happen that time. So this repeats itself for, I don't know, three, four years, you know, get up in the morning, get the coffee, go down and dust it, pluck the strings and sniff the sound hole. And Doc always said, well, one of these days I'll give it to you. So he finally did. Hmm. He, he finally did one, one Christmas. And he said, I just want the Grover Rotomatics <laughs> tuning <laughs> machines that are on there. And uh, I said, well, give me your wrench and screwdriver. I'll take them off right away. So anyway, I got it. Uh, I got it home. And it was in worse shape than I imagined once I got a mirror inside. So anyway, it took me a couple of years piddling with it here and there to, you know, uh, doing all the repair work myself. I uh, finally got it back together. And we were doing we were doing the uh, dear old Southern Home and uh, on praying ground records. We did both of those records in five days worth of sessions. Anyway, I got it back together, and I thought this is going to be cool. I can I'm going to take this guitar. This guitar is going to be on a Doc Watson record again, only with me playing it. So anyway, we're setting up in the studio, and I didn't tell Doc I was bringing it. Uh, we're setting up in the studio, and I just laid it in his lap. And as soon as he grabbed the neck, he knew the he knew the guitar, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he strummed it and said, "Well, man, you were right. There is still some music left in this guitar. I, you know, I can't believe it. it you know, that it's playable again." And he played on it for about ten minutes and kept going on about what a good old friend that guitar had been to him and how you know, how he just still loved the tone of that guitar and everything. And I could tell by the look on his face, he's thinking, I should have fixed that thing. <laughs> I should have fixed that guitar. And so I, he was strumming away and I leaned over and whispered in his ear and said, yeah, maybe one of these days I'll give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.